Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hi everyone, just before we get this next history hack out and going, just a quick reminder that there are lots of ways you can support the pod. Remember, just by liking, subscribing, and sharing it with your friends, that is invaluable as it gets the word out and our witterings can go far and wide. But if you're able to support us financially, that would be incredible because it helps us keep doing what we're doing. In the description to this episode, there are links to Patreon, where you can support the podcast regularly, and Ko-Fi, where you can tip us for an episode that you like. But we've also got some merch. So if you head to shop.historyhackpod.com, You'll be able to see some incredible bits of merchandise featuring designs that Steve Smith does for every episode. We've got some totes on there, some mugs, and we've got more stuff coming all the time. So please do check that out. And if you are able to support us financially, thank you so much. But even if it's just liking, sharing, and telling everyone we're incredible, that helps us too. So without further ado... Hello and welcome to History Hat. It's Mass and Zach on duty today, and we are going to be traveling all over the world talking about one very special thing today with a fantastic guest. Who have we got with us today, Zach? Hello, Boney. We have got Anthony Burton, who's been writing about the history of technology for, well, a while now. Most notably, he wrote and presented The Rise of King Cotton for the BBC. So we, we've got esteemed guests for you here on History Hype. Don't you go knocking our guest list. We'll be coming after you. We've got quality for you. Anthony has also advised on lots of other projects, and he is now proudly the author of a new book entitled Silk, The Thread That Tied the World. And Boney and I have been trying to establish precisely what silk is, such as the nature of our ignorance, but perhaps we will or won't go there. Uh, Tony, great to see you. Welcome to History Hack. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. Boney, do you want to go down the whole what is silk thing just for the sake of making people laugh at our... I think we should because we fired this one off at Tony a minute ago and had a good giggle. So I I suppose we're going to get into our sort of fascination with silk. But what is silk? And as we were giggling before, is it worm poo? Don't disappoint Oh, us. it isn't worm poo, but I oh. show you, it may look like worm poo, but that is a silk cocoon. And it's inside it, I think you probably won't be able to hear this, but it rattles because there's a little dead chrysalis in there of the silk moth. And around it, is a very fine thread. Now, the weird thing is, if you look at that, you think, why did anybody ever think, oh, that's a good thing to do. Let's turn that into cloth. It'll be beautiful. Why would you do that? 
Well, of course, the answer is, in legend, a Chinese princess about four years ago was having tea under a mulberry bush. And one of these dropped in and it started to unwind. And this fine thread came out and she had the brilliant idea of calling her servants round and said, unravel that lot, wind it together and make something out of it. And that in legend is the start of the silk story. It is, of course, just a legend, but it has been made in China for at least 4,000 years just from this very fine fibre, which forms the cocoon. It's, it's incredible, isn't it? What's it actually like to work with? You know, in terms of a technological process, we kind of know about the development of the wool trade within Western Europe. What's the sort of, what do we know about the very early stages of you know, developing the use of silk into the fabric that we associate with the word today? Well, it's the basic thing is that it's all gummed together. So you have to sort of basically ungum these fine fibres, wind them together, form a thread. And then just like any other fabric, you have to turn it into cloth using some sort of loom. And the simplest looms that we use, as far as we know, appear to be in China, what are called backstrap looms. Basically, for anybody who doesn't know, I mean, you've got two sorts of threads on a loom. You've got the warp and the weft. The old weaver's joke is the warp goes up and down, the weft goes from weft to white. Sorry about that one. You do at least remember it that way. Um, So basically they intercross with each other. The warp threads are permanently fixed and you can raise them up and down. You create a gap, you have a shuttle. Very early shuttles were very simple. Hang on, I'll show you one. That's very much the sort of basic shuttle that would have been, this one's actually from India and was used for cotton, but as you can see, it's just thrown across in between the the different threads to create the the cloth itself. So it's quite large. It it looks like a a toy boat, doesn't it? It does look like a toy boat, yeah. I mean, modern looms and shuttles are much more sophisticated than that, but they're still used in in India in some parts. I mean, and that just, when it's thrown across, it it trails out the... um, the thread is in a spindle inside the boat. So that, that's the basis of the whole thing. And it produces a very narrow cloth, which is often used for things like banners in the old days. And we've turned them into ties. <laughs> which is always a thing. But this, I, I suppose the next question is, which again, we, it's not on our list here, but it sort of booms in China and it expands out from them. So we have things like the Silk Road. How do we find out about silk in in the West, it being this very Eastern thing before it starts becoming this massive trade? Well, the Chinese tried to keep the secret to themselves. It was a, I mean, it's always been a very highly prized material because it's got this beautiful quality and luster to it. Inevitably, somebody was going to find out the secret. Originally, it seems to have gone to Korea, And then it reached the West into Byzantium when two monks went to China and they had walking sticks with hollow bamboo and they filled them with cocoons and brought them back. But the Silk Road was mainly involved in bringing silk from China to the West. And it's called the Silk Road. That's a bit misleading because, in fact, it was no just like a road, like we would know it. It was just a route which wasn't called that, which was any route that took 
silk from China and other goods in the opposite direction. And because it came to the West, event, first of all, to the Middle East, a lot of other ideas came down the Silk Road at the same time. Things which we take for granted. I mean, for example, we talk about the numerals we use as being Arabic numerals. Well, they're not, they're actually Indian. When you think about it, in the Roman times, we had Roman numerals. They must be awful to work with. Imagine trying to multiply XVII by LXII. I mean, how do you start doing that? I have no idea. But the Indians it developed a system of one to 10, which included a zero, which was very slowly adapted into the West because said, how can you have a symbol meaning nothing? And yet today, our whole world would be so different without these numerals. And it's just one example of the ideas and things like steel from India, which came down the Silk Road as well as the silk. And in the opposite direction, ideas moved into China, Buddhism moved into China, for example, and became usually important. So the whole Silk Road was like a, a two-way traffic. Somebody's trying to ring me up, I'll ignore it. <laughs> the joys of podcasting for you right there. <laughs> it's something that I guess develops over time, doesn't it? So in our head, it, it goes from the West to the East. So you have a start point, sort of broadly speaking, Constantinople, and then your end point is within China. So what ends up being linked up in the process? You know, where does this kind of effectively trade sequence of trade routes, where does it kind of link? Which places does it link together is my very badly phrased question. <laughs> well, it runs through India and India developed its own um, silk trade which was rather different because they actually have a different silk moth. It produces a different sort of silk, so that their silk goods were not quite the same as Chinese. So, I mean, it was a complex route. You had to cope with appalling conditions on the Silk Road. I mean, you had to, you got irritating things like the Himalayas in the way, for example, you know, terrible deserts to cross. So crossing the Silk Road, usually with camels, was a hazardous business, apart from the fact that there were rich merchants travelling it, and rich merchants are, of course, um, possible prey for the local bandits to do their foul deeds upon. So it was always a most difficult route. And it, the value of silk, one of the reasons why it is so valuable is simply because, like all things which are not easily obtained, it increases their value. The less of it is, less of it you have, the more you want it. And what about the perishability of it? You know, this comes from the question, of a position of total ignorance, but you're, you're going up mountains, across arid deserts. Yep. You know, do you find that actually there's a good proportion of the stock that just doesn't make it? No, no, no silk is a very, very, very powerfully strong material. I mean, we have silk surviving for thousands of years. You know, and you, if you go to some of the museums, you, you can find amazing, beautiful Chinese silks, which are well over 2,000 years old. So something that lasts that long is going to survive pretty well. But of course, eventually, of course, it reached Europe. And then Europeans started to make their own, manufacture their own silk. Using Chinese threads, 
generally, although there were attempts to have silk farms, and successful in some cases, but often using Chinese. And it was in um, Italy. It wasn't Italy then, but mostly in Piedmont that the a, a silk industry developed. And it was there that it was first mechanised, brought the whole thing into a whole new generation. They had a method of using of spinning the silk using water power as a source. And there's a story goes along with that as well, because over in Britain, much later on in the early 18th century, the Loom brothers decided that this is the story, I have to say, decided that they wanted to find the secret of how the Italians managed to manufacture silk thread. So one of the brothers went over pretending to be an itinerant workman meant to get himself a job in a silk mill where he took careful notes of how all the machinery worked. When he thought he had the whole thing mastered, he came back to England and they set up the first silk mill in Britain in Derby and it was a big success. Now the story then goes that the Piedmontese were furious and they sent over an assassin and who poisoned John Loom for his temerity in stealing this secret. Now, the story probably isn't true, I have to say, but it's a good oh, story. Oh, you keep on spoils it now, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> I know I've spoiled it, but uh, one has to, it is a history, not a fictional <laughs> story here. So I've got a quick couple of questions. So yeah, sure. Are, are all Looms named after the Loom? brothers like hoovers no no oh okay no it no just as a happy coincidence it, it's just it, it's not the same spilling the oh, loom right. brothers are l-o-m-b-e as opposed to l-o-o-m okay so that, some looms are named after people uh, the, the loom that the big advance is of course the the jacquard loom hmm. which is named after joseph marie jacquard of france and this was the big course by the 17th century in the silk garments being produced became more and more elaborate with amazing patterns. You get things like brocades and velvets. Now, to do this is extremely complicated. Just to go back to the basic loom, you've got your warp threads and your lifting. Now, if they're different colors, if you lift them in a different order, you will get a different pattern. You, so first of all, you've got to decide what your pattern is and then work out for each throw of the shuttle which threads have to be lifted and which to be left down because the threads that come on top of the ones that show. So, for example, if you lift a white thread and put a red thread underneath, the white will be on top and vice versa. So in order to do this, there's a boy called a draw boy who had the pattern in front of him for each draw and for each throw of the shuttle, he had to lift the appropriate threads. Get one wrong, your pattern's ruined. So it's a very stressful job, an extremely uncomfortable job, perched on top of this great wooden structure. And Jacquard came up with a solution to mechanise it. And what he used was punched cards, so that when the rod which holds the warp thread comes up, it either hits a hole and goes on up, and the thread's lifted, or it hits the card and sticks, bonk, so it isn't lifted. So for each thread, there's a separate set of holes. So 
you make a set of cards and then with each further settle, it automatically comes in. And you could say that this is the first digital computer because it's basically doing a binary code. It's lift, don't lift like a naught one in the machinery we're using today. And it was the forerunner of the modern computer. I mean, when I first worked in a computer university, it was the size of a small block of flats. You had to book an hour on it and you fed in punched tape and all it did was crunch numbers. I mean, the idea that you could talk to somebody on it with, or even write a letter on it was unbelievable. So really you could say that the Jacquard loom was really the start of a whole new form of technology, all because of silk. So we've got Chinese silk, we've got Indian silk, and we now have European silk, which is using Chinese silkworms. Is it, I, I suppose, is it noticeable difference between them? You said the Indian um, silk silkworms were slightly, you know, slightly low, yep. lower class worms. Second, second class silkworms. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> they they have, a, have a shorter, and it's more difficult to get. So originally they had coarser material. Mm-hmm. It was known as... and. A lot of the silk, when it came off the uh, off something like this, it, it might not be even, another, and it was called waste silk. It was used for padding. But in Britain, in the 19th century, they developed a system for using it. The shorter fibres, really a, a follow-up from the technology already been developed for using cotton, which has comparatively short fibres. And they were able to start producing perfectly good silk using waste silk, not necessarily of the same quality as you get with the best material, but it still has this, this very special quality. Of course, the great thing about it is the luster and the almost incandescence of the material. And you, people only discovered why that was when they actually looked at the silk thread under a microscope. It actually has a triangular cross-section which means that, in effect, a silk thread is a very long pyramid. Now, if you shine light through a pyramid, we all know what happens. You get a prismatic effect, you get the colours of a rainbow. So when silk moves, it changes the way it reflects the light. And that's one of the magical qualities about silk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. That's fascinating. I never knew that. That's why I like doing this podcast. I tend to you know, fill in gaps and stuff I should should probably know. So it, it, it's this fun 
fantastic fabric. I suppose we, we're used to clothes and things, but what else is being made sort of th- through this period from it? You know, we've got notes here about tapestries, even balloons. So yeah, it's, yes. it's being used for everything. I mean, the, f- the first um, hot air balloons, the Montgolfier brothers used silk for the, for the envelope. I mean, it's a bit expensive now. You wouldn't do it now because it's, it's a very, very good material for not letting the air out, basically. And, of course, it's, it's very light, which is important if you've got a balloon. Tapestry making is, of course, the other use. Later on, it's used in the first parachutes. And it's a magical material. And the very last use that we've come across of it, the latest development, which is the most painstaking one of all, is spider silk. Spider silk is probably the strongest material known in natural world. But if you can imagine trying to get silk, apparently getting silk out of the spider isn't difficult, but the particular spider they use, the golden orb spider, you basically have to tickle its backside to get to start producing the material. And it's a Madagascan spider. And they were able to produce enough to make this beautiful, and it is golden tape. The spider produces a golden thread. And it is the most extraordinary thing. I can probably show you a picture of it. Hang on, if you'll just bear with me for a moment. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. There you are. Can you see that? Good God. It, Isn't that it, amazing? It, that is remarkable. It, it is. It's bright gold. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the little beastie that does it. Golden orb spider. But of course, we weren't satisfied with the natural material. In the 19th century, they tried to make artificial silk. And that led to a whole new industry as well. And, uh, of course, eventually it finished up with the Duponts producing nylon. And um, the age of the silk stocking went out and the age of the nylon stocking came in. Terrible time that was. (laughs) We've charted this journey from China to India, through the Middle East to Italy and then the UK, well, England as it was then. But the new world also gets in on the game. What's the situation there? Is there any kind of precursor to this, or is this very much sort of the industrial era where we start to see silk being produced in in the new world? It it started off in the colonial era when America was still still British colonies. And the British thought that um, they'd be able to grow the mulberry trees and start farming silk. In, the, in America, which wasn't a great success because they started in the northeast of America. And for a time, there, there was a sort of mulberry trees were incredibly expensive and much sought after. Everybody thought they could make a fortune with the thing. 
but the climate wasn't suitable. And eventually it finished up that they began a new industry with mulberry trees and, and with silk farms, first of all in, in the Carolinas, in South Carolina, and later on, much later on, when in the days of the United States, in California. But it was in Massachusetts that it became a major industry. And whole towns were developed doing nothing but manufacturing silk in a, a, a huge way. And was that Chinese worms or Indian worms? So, now that I know that, now that I know, there's two types of silkworm. Were they, were they oh, no, no, they, they would be the Chinese, the Ombex mori, to be posh. No, oh, there we go. Yeah. When you say large quantities, how much of this stuff are we we talking about? So we're sort of 18th, 19th century here. What sort of volume are we 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 thinking about? Oh Lord, you've got me there. Oh, yeah. Because I'm, I'm just thinking as, as, a, as a luxury, you don't want to be producing too much. Yeah. Because right? in the I price mean, drops. You, know, but... you mean, yes, it was always, you know, it was always a luxury good. If, if you go back, if we go back to France, for example, and the days just before the Jacquard loom, I mean, then you've got amazingly complex dresses being made for ladies there and waistcoats for men. There's a wonderful museum in Lyon, Musée de Tissu. And um, among the exhibits there is a, a dress which was made for Marie Antoinette, which I thought rather inappropriately or appropriately, depending on how you look at it, is being shown on a headless mannequin. Considering the poor lady lost her head in the guillotine, did seem a bit sort of uh, off, really. And there's also the drapings made for Napoleon's four-poster bed, but there are these extraordinarily exquisite garments, which were hugely expensive. And of course, there were also a huge market in the Roman Catholic clergy. You know, bishops and people all had their silken robes. So it was, particularly in Italy, it was very, very, very big business. And uh, the different centres all vied with each other to produce the finest silks and uh, Poached each, uh, poached each other's workers. They thought they knew something that the others didn't. So in terms of making money out of this, obviously it's the people who are doing the selling who benefit most. But if you're uh, working with silk as a, inverted commas, lay person, but a, a skilled worker nonetheless, what do you actually make? Are you still kind of getting minuscule amounts or is is this a profession where if you've got a skill with working with this material you can earn a decent wage from it it depends which part of the world you're in i mean most of the silk these days is being made in the far east and i suspect that the actual people who are doing the weaving are not the ones who are making the money out of it but of course in in france now but going back to Lyon, for example when i was there i i saw the whole range of people manufacturing. You can go to a, a shop in the weaving district and in the back room, there's a man working at a handloom producing beautiful material, which he's then selling in his shop out the back. And just outside town, you go to a factory producing exquisite brocades of a sort that were made in the 18th century, but no longer even with a jacquard loom, but just it's computerized. Of course, it's computerized. Why wouldn't it be in this day and age? You know, all you do is put in. When I was there, it was was 
uh, a few years ago, it was slipping in a floppy disk, and off it went, you know. So it varies enormously, so that you can go to Asia and still see people working on hand looms in much the way as they did hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and probably not making very much money. And there are other people, of course, who are designers and who are doing very well out of it. And silk will always be a unique material. No matter what you do with artificial materials, rayons, nylons, they will never match the real thing. It's got a quality which is unique and its rarity and the difficulty of its manufacture will always ensure that there'll always be a market. Well, that leads on to what I was going to ask, because you talked about how the journey for artificial silk sort of ended up with the discovery of nylon. Is there a, a way in which, is there a future in which, you know, people are just able to create this stuff? I mean, are you able to replicate it? We talk a lot about 3D printing these days and how you can almost 3D print anything. Is well, there a, a way in which you could artificially create something that looks like silk but actually isn't silk? Nobody's, I wouldn't say it's not going to happen. If you'd asked me just <clears throat> a few decades ago if this technology we're using today was possible, I'd have said, I don't think so. So it's very unwise to say something isn't going to happen. Yes, of course, it's going to be possible to do so. Whether it will happen or not is because there's also another side to it, that people actually like natural materials. On the other hand, there was a, the Gandhian movement opposed silk manufacture because inside this cocoon is a little dead beast which has to be killed before you can use it. The silk moth produces this cocoon with the chrysalis inside and in order to get this material, that creature has to die. So in, in the creation of silk, you're kind of stopping the reproduction of the creature that creates silk in the first place. You are, but of course you have to allow enough to live to continue the supply. But yes, you're killing thousands and thousands and probably over around the world, millions of small creatures in order to produce something to look beautiful in. You're saying to say we have we have this fascination around natural fibers and things. What do you think that the sort of enduring luster of silk has been? It, we've talked about it being this unique thing, but it's it still captures the imagination. You say silk to somebody, and most people's eyes light up. Yes, I, I was fortunate enough to see um, some Second World War parachute silk that was used as a scarf. Um, yeah, the, the other week, and it's the most beautiful thing, even dyed in, in camouflage things, but. Why is why is it sort of stuck with us as this most amazing and sought after fabric? I suppose really to show this, we should have a beautiful model in a silk dress walking across in front of us to show the way in which the lightness of it, the way that it flows and moves, because it's a beautifully supple. I mean, you know, wool, of course, is lumpy. And even compared to cotton, silk has a, a flow to it, you know, even in the 17th century. I mean, I think Eric wrote a poem about how Julia, the 
a dress of silk was a thing of beauty because of the way it flowed. It takes dyes beautifully. It's available. It can be exquisite and it can be used to produce 3D effects as in brocades and velvets. It's got a richness which <coughs> I think is unmatched with anything else I've, I can imagine. <coughs> I can't afford silk shirts myself. <laughs> not sure any of us can, uh, certainly not on a podcasting budget. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> one, one more question from me in, in terms of just that process. And I'm thinking about how in Europe, a lot of emphasis was put on lace and you know the the mm, process yeah. and i've seen people sort of weave lace and i sort of think it's an incredible thing but then all yes, of these kind of yes exactly and and the way in which these things get weaved together is incredible in terms of a hierarchy of different fibers and the complexities of working with them can you give us a sense of where each of these sit it's very difficult if you're working on a hand loom it's doesn't make an enormous amount of difference whether you're working with one fabric or another. The problem, the biggest difficulty, <coughs> excuse me, it's like cough, um, with the, with, is in extracting, I mean, the painstaking way, originally it was all done by hand, just having to <coughs> unwind this extraordinarily fine fibre from thousands of thousands of these things just to make one garment, winding it and twisting it together. <coughs> Doing that by hand was extremely difficult. If you can weave, say on a hand loom or on something yeah. a bit fancier, providing you get to know, get to know your medium, you could sort of quite happily jump between say lace or. or well, lace. Uh, well, no, lace is slightly different, but mm -hmm. um, it's a, it's a different process used for lace making altogether. Okay. It's not made My ignorance showing through there. <laughs> but I mean, <coughs> I have a friend who's a textile designer and handloom weaver. And I mean, he works with an incredible variety of materials all on the same loom. Yeah, you know, including things that you wouldn't think even were used in fabrics like paper. Yes, of course. <laughs> paper being. Like paper with sort of common, and he and he works with. In fact, he wove his sister's wedding dress material. Oh wow! Her wedding present, just rather wow. splendid. That's that's quite something, isn't it? Yeah, Tony, it really is. This has been really interesting. It's been an education for for me and for Boney. I think it's fair to say Boney sort of nods vigorously. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise. You're so your welcome. book. The Silk, the Thread that Tied the World. We're going to stick it on our History Hack bookshop. Well, I, I say we. I'm going to make Boney do it because Boney's <laughs> behind all of these sort of technical things. Um, so, folks, you're going to want to know about the story behind it. There's far more detail than we've been able to cover in the course of this episode. And also the way in which it has sort of shaped the world and the way in which the world has developed. So have a look at the History Hack bookshop. And Tony, do stay in touch. I'm sure you're going to be working on other really exciting and really interesting projects. And we'd love to have you back in the future. I shall be. Thanks very much for your time. Well, thanks so much indeed for having me. Thank you, Tony. It's been a pleasure. Nice meeting you both. 
When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 